0: You're about to hear a preview of partially examined life supporter exclusive content to learn how to get the whole thing. Check out partially examined life.comslash support. Hey, this is the partially examined life episode 302 part three, talking a little more about Erasmus's in praise of folly. Just me and you S
1: yeah. What happened to Dylan? <laughs>
0: well, who knows? Maybe he'll show up anytime now, but let's push ahead were there things from the text that you felt like we had not yet hit, or should we go free for me?
1: We can go free for me. I mean, I think we hit all the major stuff. If we're gonna reiterate anything high level, it's just looking back at it, I I took more notes and since our last discussion and thought about it a little bit more. We talked about the way the book is structured and how in the beginning the focus is very much on all of Folly's advantages, including all the irrational stuff, desire and pleasure and self-love. And then we get into that transition with the two types of madness. And then we get all this folly in the pejorative sense, which is odd since the book is in praise of folly. So some of that is what he calls the folly of the vulgar crowd, self-destructive impulsivity, let's say. So that's the flip side of desire. And that's a more traditional Christian sounding critique of desire. And then he goes after the wise, quote unquote, which includes everyone from schoolmasters to princes to theologians. And the idea largely there is that their self-love and their inflated sense of self, their status seeking kind of makes them absurd. But there's kind of a twist at the end, which I I don't know how much we emphasize that in our last episode, which is just that we could maybe read from some of that part of the text too, but just that folly in the sense of simplicity or humility something that's akin to Christianity that emerges as kind of triumphant and it includes the scorning of the bodily, right? In favor of the invisible and the spiritual and even the mastering of bodily passions. So it's kind of a weird reversal because we get a positive take on asceticism at the end. I guess that's the big point. I said all that really in service of <laughs> very simple point, which is that the critique of a the very Nietzschean critique of asceticism that we see through most of the text, gets a bit of a reversal at the end, and we get a positive form of asceticism that ultimately is justified by love of God. With the idea that the world considers that folly. So
0: I was trying to get whether there was any sort of relativism in this, and I have to say, most definitely not. It's more just ambiguity and a I don't want to say moral skepticism, but a skepticism about our earthly ways of getting knowledge, including about the moral things. And so we don't know the insides of other people's minds. We don't really know perhaps what God wants us to do. There are hermeneutic ambiguities in texts, in holy laws, in any number of things such that you might think that presumably what the popes in his time were doing started with some basis in scripture and you just don't know whether you're going to turn off the righteous path at any given point. And so being less judgmental, being more humble, more open to trying to really understand people, those humanistic sort of values, I think is compatible with a very Platonist ultimate view of virtue. It's just as hard, it's hard to ascend the ladder You know, from the bodily to the spiritual, we all fall and we're all sinful. Like, I got to go back to my very first point that I feel like there is something to that relation between folly in the good sense and sin in the non mortal sense. There's got to (laughs) be, by saying nobody's perfect, there's got to be a Christian way to put that without saying sin is actually good. It's not supposed to be perverse that way.
1: So, for any phenomenon at stake here, whether it's like sexual desire, for instance, or whether it's super ascetic scholasticism, hyper-rationality, right? Think of two things that are seemingly opposites. Mm -hmm. Each one of them is categorized by Erasmus as folly, and each one of them has a pejorative sense and a non-pejorative sense that kind of lines up with his division of madness into two so, for instance, when he makes that division of madness into, two, he says, well, there are two kinds, and one of them is, he seems to say it's about overweening lust and war, hunger, and so it sounds like the typical things. It's sex or violence and some sort of excess, right? So, we get both. It's like, folly is great because we need sex. We need sexual desire. That's the foundation of being. We need the passions. We even need them for virtue. We can't cultivate. Virtuousness and ethics without the passions. And then on the other side of it, it turns out to be the case that that's completely compatible with the more traditional critique of such things as sinful. It's a matter of recognizing when they are sinful and when they aren't. And then the same thing goes for the other side, right? So he really rakes asceticism over the coals and and implies that a lot of it has to do with forms of status consciousness but also just you know like the feeling of power and being a schoolmaster whether it's the power of lording it over kids or whether it's the power of pedantry or the power of the sense of mastery over your material you know he doesn't tell us this but you know obviously there's some conception of book learning that he likes and there's a conception of theology that he likes for any of these things, and even asceticism at the very end. So, mastering the bodily passions is a good thing. Focusing on the spiritual is a good thing. What I'm saying here is I don't know if we get a solid criterion for distinguishing the pejorative sense from the good sense, except to point to the many cases in which status consciousness is involved, or people just take themselves too seriously.
0: Did you detect any of the Eastern interpenetration of opposites. In other words, it's good that we have folly because if we didn't have folly, we would not understand wisdom by contrast. Like I didn't necessarily see any of that there. It seems like very low hanging fruit if you're going to praise folly, if you're going to praise any suffering. It seems like this whole thing is a neighbor argument to theodicy, right? Why is there evil? Why is there folly? Why is there folly in human nature? But I didn't necessarily detect any of the flavors of, well, there's, you know, folly, people do dumb things so that we can learn, so that we can, by contrast with them, you know, set ourselves up virtuously or anything like that.
1: So learn from the example of people who are sinful or vicious or whatever. Yeah.
0: Or even just that. foolish. Like it would seem like that a great way to learn how to be a better lecturer is To have somebody do a little lecturing workshop and say, This sermon giver slurs his words together as he does. You know, he's doing instructional things in here. I think that that is the purpose to try to get us to look at these follies and think more carefully and avoid them <laughs> insofar as they yeah. can be avoided, at least for part two of the reading.
1: So bad people are on earth in order to help us. <laughs> Say, all right, I don't want to be like that. <laughs> it's like some forms of folly we're supposed to emulate and others we're supposed to not emulate and which are which, right? We're supposed to be like fools in a way. We're supposed to be like simpletons in some sort of way, but obviously in another way, we're not. So at the very end, we get a kind of some guidance on that, which is the simpletonism, or the simplicity of Christ and the apostles is preferable to the over sophistication of the scholastics. And that simplicity comes down to, you know, I wrote and like going over this again, I wrote down the phrase procedural knowledge and thought about, yeah, that some of this is about know how and about a more practical orientation towards the world. And the same thing goes for like Erasmus' preferred conception of religion, which is focused not so much on ceremonies and rituals and sacraments but on what's going on inside what's going on in your inner life faith and you know things that there's some crossover there with the protestant revolution
0: let's take his without agreeing with his sexism take the example to say it is probably a feature of the life of intellectuals like him where they go home
1: remember it's it's folly that's sexist and she's allowed to be sexist because she's a woman <laughs> even see he puts that in the text so
0: so I was just thinking we should perhaps take Erasmus seriously in this experience that he has of the intellectuals of his time if they're married of course he was not married but since the women were not educated it really would be in a way that it is not now that you felt like when you went home if you're out doing scholarly things all day and you go home and the home would be a place that's just free of intellect right your wife is going to talk about nothing but very practical things nothing that would touch any of what
1: would be going on in your important male life in the world i was going to put in a little bit of a caveat which i think erasmus was an advocate Mm -hmm. of female education and he was also friendly with some very prominent female intellectuals at the time i can't remember their names and i forget where i read that probably in the stanford article or something like that so just in case we're misrepresenting Erasmus and someone will come along and tell us that we are, but I just wanted to throw in that caveat.
0: If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Thanks for listening.